Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Hello and welcome to this edition of She Wrote Too with Caroline and Nicola. This time we're going to be talking about Sultana's Dream, which is by Rokea Sakoat Hussain and was published in 1905. So this book was written in India by Rokea, who was a Muslim woman in... In colonial Bengal, so an area which is present-day Bangladesh. But at the time that she was born, that was in Bengal, and during her lifetime, Bengal Mm. was then partitioned into two regions. Indeed it was, yeah. So the story is about a woman who goes into her bedroom, falls asleep, the clue is in the title, Sultana's Dream, and is woken up by her friend, Sister Sarah, or so she thinks it is, and they go off on a walk. So we find that Sultana has entered this beautiful country and she finds out that it's called Ladyland. So they wander off into Ladyland and things seem rather different. There are spoilers, by the way, I should just remind you of that. We have put it on the page that there will always be spoilers. So they go walking through the streets and there are no men. And this is very unusual for Sultana because she comes from a culture where the women were expected to stay inside and the men were out and about doing all the public activity. So for her, it's a bit odd that there are no men around. So she asks her friend what's going on. And she's told that all the men are indoors and that Ladyland is a place that's free from sin and harm and that virtue reigns here which sounds rather lovely. And that's when we can sort of work out that we're going into a utopian world and it's it's sort of a vision. It's quite an amusing exchange that starts happening because we get this conversation about where the men are. Where are the men? In their proper place, where they ought to be. And humour is in this, and we're going to be talking about that quite a bit later on. But in terms of the plot, they discuss why there are no men around and then Sister Sarah shows Sultana some of the amazing technology that the community are using to make their lives easier. I suppose it's environmental technology really. They have things like big water balloons that are able to extract rainwater from the atmosphere Mm. to water their crops. There's lots of beautiful flowers and plants everywhere and the city is not divided into urban and rural areas. It's all like one big garden. Yes, and we find that that's enough for them to all feed themselves and that they are eating a diet of fruit and vegetables and that then it doesn't seem that they're killing any animals because it does get mentioned that they don't like to kill anything. Yeah. So 
they're using environmental science basically to run their country so it's looking rather different from the the colonial India that she was actually living in and the ideas that she puts forward in this story with the big balloon that waters the land they use solar power don't they yeah, yeah. thank you yeah. i was losing my words so she she takes her through this land and we also learn that there's a female university where women are engaged in scientific research and the men used to waste their time on all things to do with military power which is why the women have been able to come up with all these better solutions and the whole place is under the leadership of a queen so there is a monarchy and the queen will trade with other countries they're not insular but she says that she will only trade with countries where the women are in charge (laughs) so there may not have been so many of those but this is a utopia so there could be so it's quite interesting that the queen is in charge and there's a lady principal of the university Mm -hmm. all the men are not in public life they're all inside and there's not really a a crisis or anything is there that you would normally expect in a story arc no i suppose it is a description of this wonderful place yeah because at the end as you might imagine from what we've already said and from the title sultana wakes up and she realizes that she is back home in seclusion and that it was all a dream and that's not presented as a twist in the tale is it we know from the beginning no. that's what it is yes that's why I was rather facetiously saying about Sultana's dream the clues mm. in the title mm. yes it's not kept a secret so it's not like when a child gives you an essay and, and it says and it was all a dream yeah. it's not that kind of thing at all it really allows her to explore what another world could be mm. So it's quite a short book. Um, if anyone wants to read it, you can actually find it out of copyright online, full text, or you can buy a copy. And there's a lot of issues that is raised in this short work. So we're going to be discussing some of those now. We are going to give a brief overview of the political situation that Begum Rokea <coughs> was operating in and a bit of background about her and her life. And then we're going to look at some of the themes that are in the work. So there are things like the environmental aspects. We have the anti-colonial message that comes through. Um, it can be interpreted as a science fiction work, so we'll say a little bit about that. Yes, because some of the ideas about the environmental science are quite visionary, aren't oh. they? And you can see that she wouldn't have known whether or not these things mm. were possible at mm. that time. But science happens because someone has the imagination yeah. to think what could be possible, mm. yeah. which is one of the things that I really love about it and I think is so valuable about utopia mm. in, in speculative fiction as well. Yeah. And it's funny and satirical as well, so we'll talk a bit about how she uses humour. OK, so at the time... India was under colonial rule, which in the UK we tend as a society not to have been told very much about, really. Yeah, so the much older generations might have learned about it at school, but in terms of empire and how you should be proud of that. Yes. But then by the time we were at school, which is mm, a few decades ago now, isn't it? (laughs) That was not taught at all. We didn't know anything about it. No. The empire ended in 1947, so quite a long time after this book was written. But colonial control of India had started in the 1700s, Mm. so they were there for a 
very considerable amount of time. It's fair to say that it was it was described as colonialism mm. and colonising these places. It was actually invading them. Mm. I, I don't think that's too strong a language no. to say. And there's some, a really good book by Shashi Tharoor, which I'll put a link to on the page, about... It's called Inglorious Empire, because the empire used to be associated with glory and honour and mm. victory. And quite why is, is hard to fathom mm. now. But coming back to the relevance here, the British East Indian Company were used as a private company mm -hmm. to go and colonise India. They had an army, which was a very unusual thing for a private company mm. to have. They had a reputation for being brutal and amoral and for just seizing what they wanted. At the time when they invaded, India was one of the wealthiest countries mm. in the world. Mm -hmm. I think they had about 24% of the world's mm. wealth or something like that. They had an incredibly successful textiles industry and diamonds and spices and all, all the exotic things. Mm. So it was very brutal the way that it was seized. And so Sultana's dream is set in this context where you've got British power and they viewed the, themselves as a civilising force. Mm enforcing democracy and law and order and civil service and books and forms and bits of paper. Yeah, and by the time Begum Rokea was writing, it wasn't the East India Company anymore, was it? No, because there was an uprising in 1857 and India was handed back to the Crown. Mm -hmm. Handed back? It wasn't theirs in the <laughs> no. first place. It was handed to the Crown. Yeah, so it's no longer a private company, but now Queen Victoria was the was Empress, Empress of India. Of India. Mm. So the changes that the East India Company had put in were just maintained but by the British mm. government. So there was a civil service and so on, but it was full of white people from the mm. UK. They they sometimes used to let some Indians into the civil service, but not very many. Yeah, I think Rakea's ancestors had apparently had some roles in the Raj. Had administrative they? roles, yeah. It mm. was quite a rare thing. Mm. But a lot of the administration was centred in the area where she lived. So I suppose there would have been a higher proportion of Indian people working for them in that region. Well, bearing that in mind, the sort of system that the British had with their law and order and so on, it was a very patriarchal system. And that's where it, it's relevant to this book, because Ladyland is not a patriarchy. And so she gently mocks the idea and rejects it without actually saying anything particularly aggressive mm, about yeah, it or, or being angry. So just to talk about Rokea herself so that we know a little bit about the background yes, of the writer. She was born in 1880 in Rangpur in what was then colonial Bengal. She was a Muslim and she was born into quite a strict family. Her father was actually highly educated and multilingual, but he didn't believe that women should have a role in public life. So Rokea and her older sister were obliged to stay at home and observe Purda, which meant if they had gone out they would have to be veiled, but most of the time they would be staying in their own part of the house, completely out of the eyesight of anybody visiting, so that included women and men. So she wasn't able to go to school, her brothers did go to school, 
Fortunately, her brothers were supportive of her desire to become educated and they were able to help her and pass on what they'd learnt. So she wanted to learn English and Bangla, which she did with her brother's help. And she was able to gain an education against the odds. And this was something that became really, really important to her in later life. And she is now remembered today as a champion of women's education and women's rights generally. She is still highly celebrated in Bangladesh, but is not somebody that most British readers or listeners would be familiar with at all. No, but she was really quite an incredible character, yeah. so I think it's really nice for us to get the chance to find out a bit more mm. about her and appreciate how cleverly she was manipulating this incredibly patriarchal system. Yeah. As you already mentioned, the Purda, you know, the isolation mm. of Purda would have meant that she really wasn't getting to talk to very many people mm. as she was growing up. So this must have been all intellectual development on her part. Yeah. And just lucky that her brothers were supportive. And mm. then, of course, she got married, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And her husband was supportive as well. He was a lot older than her. Um, she was 18 when she got married. Her sister had been married off at the age of 14, but Rokea was 18 and her husband was about 38. And I've so seen differing ages yeah. of the two, depending on where I've been yes, reading it. But he was considerably older than yes, her. Yes, that's that. the important thing. Yeah, and he really encouraged her to write, continue with her language studies, and that was very important in the development of her writing. It's a really encouraging thing that there were men who had this foresight at the time mm. and encouraged women like this to mm. write. And so this value of education is really reflected in the story, isn't it? Yeah. But she went on to set up a school, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She had <clears throat> tragedy in her life. Her two daughters died in infancy. And then after about 10 years of marriage, her husband died. And he left her some money specifically to set up a girls' school, which is what she had really wanted to do. So she started that locally where she lived. And there was a bit of tension there with her yeah. husband's family. She'd started off with five students in her school. We're told that she apparently went round to people's houses trying to encourage them to let their girls come to school. But because of the opposition from family, she then moved to Kolkata and set it up again there in 1911. It's the Sakawat Memorial School. And that was one part of pretty amazing life's work. Yes. So she was a very, very determined woman and her passion for education, as I say, is really reflected in this story, which shows in this utopia, it shows the value of the education, what the women are producing at universities, mm. the potential for women. I was just going to mention okay. where this was published, and that it was published in the Indian Ladies magazine, which was quite a forward-thinking magazine and were into all sorts of social reforms, mm. definitely education for women, but they were also looking at other women's rights, including employment rights and that sort of thing. Yeah, so they early were... marriage as well, they wanted to yeah. tackle that. So this was set up by Indian women and edited by a female team. And it was written in English, so yes. it was intended to have this broad impact on the English-speaking population. Yeah, so uh, she also wrote this story, which I thought was rather nice, to thank her husband because he had helped her learn English she wrote this she wrote mm. this story in English so it was to kind of show him what she was able to achieve 
mm. which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. <laughs> and he recognised what it was, didn't he? Apparently he commented it was a terrible revenge. <laughs> so we get this... Should we talk about the narrative structure and how yeah. that's used mm-hmm. now? Because this is relevant to everything else, yeah. really. But mm. what Caroline has to try and do is keep me from <laughs> straying off onto a topic and just going off on a flight of fancy. I'll try and do that for myself, but, you know, (laughs) it doesn't always work. Right, so the narrative structure is, as we mentioned, a dream sequence. And this she uses to demonstrate the plight of the Muslim Bengali women at the time and imagining an alternative future for Mm. them. Because life was pretty difficult for them. There was the oppression of the empire, but there was also the oppression within that of women, because they were at the bottom of the pile, really, as they often are in many societies. Mm. And yet they were finding ways to express themselves, Mm. despite all of these layers Mm. of oppression. And education was one of the greatest, really, wasn't it? And writing, because Mm. even if you're not allowed to speak to lots of people, if you write and your writing gets published, then... It's yeah. out there. You've expressed yourself. So this Ladyland is not focusing on relationships or romance. We don't get a big typical crisis that no. has to be resolved. Mm-hmm. We just get the dream sequence that allows an exploration of these alternatives. So one of the themes is the environment. So this is one of the first <clears throat> things that Sultana notices when she's being led round by Sister Sarah that they're actually walking on a beautiful green lawn. There's lots of plants around everywhere. And this is like being in a garden, even though it's also a city. Which is really quite entirely possible. All of these ideas... Hmm. I am going off on one. (laughs) You know, none of them are are ridiculous, are they? They could all exist. And so it is setting out the possibilities of of what could happen. Mm. But they've got, yes, they've got this garden which supplies them with everything they need... And they are disease-free. So it's, it's implied that their way of life is healthy, it's not risky, that, OK, sometimes there are perhaps accidents, but in general, they are living this healthy lifestyle that means that disease is at an absolute minimum. And they're able to provide nourishing food for the entire population. Although it's not explicitly said, we get the impression that there aren't rich and poor divisions. And they're able to use technology to harness the environment so that they can work with it. So like I mentioned before, they've got this big water balloon which draws down the rainwater. They can then make sure everything's irrigated and equally they can ward off the really heavy rains that are harmful. So they can work with the rain and the water supply to make everything work well for them. So they have, they're doing their cooking with solar heat, mm-hmm. their electricity provides the manual work on fields. Yeah, it's sort of like automated agriculture, isn't it? Yes. And with the idea of it being disease-free, I thought that's probably this idea of the earth can provide everything you need. Yeah. I heard a lecture on it at Cambridge where the professor was saying that very thing, mm. that actually if we harnessed everything that nature provides yeah. properly... We, we don't actually need big pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And there's um, a... Sorry, big pharmaceutical companies who would love to sponsor us. But th- there is this notion of there being no big capitalist structure going on or anything No, it like seems that. to be a community that is working together to produce everything they need and being very successful at it. 
There is a time when um, the population was under attack mm. and um, it says that then the lady principal with her 2,000 students marched to the battlefield and arriving there directed all the rays of concentrated sunlight and heat towards the enemy. So they just used solar power yeah. rather than have a big fight and the heat and light were too much for them to bear and they ran away. Yeah. <laughs> They're not defenceless. So you could imagine that somebody might take advantage of this peaceful society and want to invade them, but they can stand up to it if they need to. Yes, using their natural resources. So some of the people who were trying to attack them were burnt by means of the sun heat. And since then, no one's tried to invade them anymore. No. So they're using their environmental resources extremely well, but not spending time on researching and making and building weapons. Hmm. And as we've said before, this was written in 1905. So it does make you wonder if somebody had taken these ideas and actually developed this technology starting in 1905 the environment would not be in the mess that it's in now. I know, it was it was so visionary, wasn't it? Mm. But that that's what she was trying to do. She had to get it out there. And I hope that even if we're just talking about her ideas now, these things could still be mm. worth investigating, yeah. couldn't they? Because we're in desperate need of replacing oil. And, and that's the beauty of a utopia, mm. is being able to explore ideas that maybe at the time would have seemed really far-fetched, and now we see them 100 plus years later. They're not that far-fetched at all, mm, are they? No. And that episode where they repelled the invading army actually provides the explanation for where the men are, doesn't it? Because originally we learned that Ladyland had been a society very much like the one that Sultana came from, that the men were in charge, the women were having to stay at home in what was called the Zenana, which was the region of the houses that was for the women to stay in. And when this war was happening, the men kind of agreed to let the female scientists sort it out. <laughs> yes. Yes. So they were quite happy to stay in the Modana. Yeah. So they, they were tired from fighting. So initially they went inside because they wanted to rest, really. And then they, yeah. the society was restructured so they weren't permitted out again. And their place where they have to stay is now called the Mardana, which in Sultana's life and in Rakea's life was the more public parts of the house where the men would stay. And that's an absolute reversal in this story of the real situation. Oh, yes, we get several examples of that mm. reversal. There's an example where someone gets described as mannish, and mm. I think it means quite timid or something. Yeah. But since the it says that since the system has been established, there's been no more crime or sin. Therefore, we do not require a policeman to find out a culprit, nor no. do we want a magistrate to try a criminal case. Mm. So coming back to the, the idea of colonialism, mm. that's a gentle dig mm. at all the systems that the British were going and enforcing on, on, yes, on the courts, Indian law culture. enforcement, yes. and bureaucracy. Yes, all these systems that the British insisted on setting up and um, because they thought they were civilising. I find that sickening, but she's just very gently saying that they're really not necessary, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. Without being very explicit or aggressive, which is kind of reflective of how this system, how her utopia works. You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, 
including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. So, should we talk a little bit about the humour and satire? You just touched on that, about how she does satirise these colonial systems. There's quite a few different threads of satire in this story. Some of them are directed against men and patriarchy, and some the broader patriarchal systems of the colonising power. Yes. So, when Sultana is walking with her friend in Ladyland, I think you just mentioned it that Sister Sara describes her as acting mannish, and that's because she is a bit unsure of herself being out in public, she's quite timid, and in Sister Sara's society that's associated with men. Shy and timid like men. Yeah. And I suppose that does show how the situation that the men are in is what is making them shy and timid. This is not something that is natural, but it's a product of how they've been treated in childhood and beyond. That when somebody is forced to be secluded and not to have any socialisation, then of course they're going to be shy and timid in public. So it, it does show that this is not something that's inherent to women necessarily. This is just what happens when you seclude people. Yes, this is a really interesting idea here that she gently introduces these concepts, doesn't she? Of the, the total reversal ridicules the structure that keeps women down mm. by sort of almost suggesting how crazy it is when mm. it's reversed. Yeah. But that actually the reality is that it does happen the other yeah. way around. And when you look at the Perda system, for example, and the colonial system... They all knew what they were doing with power structures. Mm. They were deliberately yeah. designed to keep people down. Yeah. And, and they're keeping women apart even within their own home. Yeah. So that women couldn't learn to be feisty or have ideas. Yes, they couldn't <clears throat> share ideas. They couldn't no. um, with people outside the household. They couldn't gain the advice of older women in the community. So they were just within their own family. Yeah, so she uses this humorous technique to, to point out the sort of impact of what it does to an individual and Caroline's quite right in saying that it isn't an, just a natural part of the human condition, mm. it's... It's what's imposed on them. What's imposed, it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. What other bits did you find funny? There's a lot that's yeah. very funny. Oh, a bit that I liked was about the work and the smoking. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> so Sultana is asking, when's all the work done? Because at home, the men who are working usually work for seven hours a day. So if people are not working, then how does all this stuff get done? Sarah <laughs> explains this. She says, do you think they work all the seven hours? Now, Sultana thinks that they do. But Sarah explains that actually they don't. They're just wasting time. <laughs> they're smoking for most of that time and messing about. So they dawdle their time away in smoking. It's Sarah's straightforward answers to the questions which Sultana raises because she's quite amazed by what she's seeing. That That's where a lot of the humour comes in, where she just tells things in such a matter-of-fact way mm. that, I don't know, is it just me, that, that I find that very humorous because mm. it's, it's satirical, I suppose. <laughs> The Queen circulated an order that all the women in the country should be educated. Mm -hmm. Accordingly, a number of girls' schools were founded and supported by the government, and education was spread far and wide among women, and early marriage was stopped. 
Now, these were issues that mm. lots of women were quite keen on. Yeah, well, she's just setting it out as the kind of the obvious solution, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose that's why it's funny, because yeah, it's just it's so just easy. Yeah, it's a matter of fact, and yeah, it is so obvious, and it does show how ludicrous it is that the situation is reversed in real life. You know, why would you keep one whole section of the population secluded uh, when they've got so much to bring to technology and education, so many ideas? And when she presents it as the men being secluded away, now to most people at that time that would have been absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But it's what was happening the other way around. You see, I think because she can just answer the questions and explain about the utopia... Mm. She's not getting interrupted by anyone saying, no, you can't do that. And yeah. No, this is why not. So she's able to present it as this is what happens. Yeah. And that gives such a calmness to it that it almost becomes laughable. And actually, Sultana does laugh. Yeah. How the tables are turned, yeah. I interposed with yeah, the laugh. Yeah, she finds it funny, doesn't she? Yeah, it? because it just, I suppose it's a laughter is a relief. You know, imagine you could have this. This could actually be a thing. But there are also very serious messages. So, yeah. And we talked a bit about the gender roles, but there's this other power affecting Sultana's life and, by extension, Rokea's life, and that is the colonial power, Britain. And Sultana's dream really does have quite a strong anti-colonial message, and like everything, and it's done subtly, but she's really making it very clear what she feels about it. One of the things that she mentions that was seen as a sort of great British invention in India is the railway. In actual fact when Britain colonised India, they built the railways to take products out of India mm. and they were built to go to the ports. Yeah, it could be presented as bringing this one technology to this country, but yeah. it didn't help them and it actually was used as part of the pillaging operation. Mm. And so in Ladyland, there aren't any trains and so there aren't any accidents on no. trains either. Because as with many of the other colonial things that came along, there was violence and with the trains, just accidents yeah. and you know, death and injury. Which unfortunately there still are. Ladyland is led by a queen and I think in some ways there are some parallels with Queen Victoria, aren't there? Oh, because yes, you... she was very young when she became queen in Ladyland, as Queen Victoria was when she inherited the throne. And... The Queen of Ladyland was queen in name only. She had a prime minister actually running the show before it all changed into their modern society. And also, as we know, Queen Victoria relied heavily on some of her prime ministers. So the queen ultimately is the one who promotes the scientific inventions in Ladyland and who comes into her own as the ruler. Yes, she does. She's in charge and the men are indoors and there's no army. The reason that the country might want an army was to invade other places. Armies tend to be described as defence forces, don't they? But really, yeah. it's for attacking other places and nicking their stuff. <laughs> so they had this military. They no longer need a military because they work with the land and the country that they've got. That's absolutely enough to provide for everybody. They don't need to go out and colonise other places. Um, so I think that is really quite subtly and intricately critical of the colonial enterprise. Yes, there's not only that, but the army and the military under colonisation were being put together for British benefit. Mm. And although this was written in 1905, so before the big 
big wars. What did actually happen was Indian soldiers were used mm. by Britain. But she couldn't have necessarily foreseen that at that point. Mm. But maybe she could see that this military was being built up, not for the benefit of the people of India, mm. but for the, the white power that yeah. was in charge. Mm. Um, right at the end of the story, there's a really important anti-colonial quotation. I'll read it out, because um, I think we should hear that. And she says, We do not covet other people's land. We do not fight for a piece of diamond, though it may be a thousandfold brighter than the Koh-i-Noor. Nor do we grudge a ruler his peacock throne. We dive deep into the ocean of knowledge and try to find out the precious gems which nature has kept in store for us. We enjoy nature's gifts as much as we can. That's excellent, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah, that is actually the Queen speaking. So this is really very obviously talking about things like the Koh-i-Noor diamond, which was stolen, and the peacock throne, which was um, the pinnacle of the Mughal Empire. And they're saying that they don't need to take these things. You know, diamond is really just a bit of sparkly rock. What they want is the knowledge, you know, the gems of knowledge, and the gifts of nature. Yes, absolutely. And... This idea of education and knowledge being so important as a way out for women to overcome these power structures as a possible mm. hope for the future, maybe. But I think that was quite a visionary idea. And I wonder if it's how much truth there is in it that education was the way out and the way forward for women. Mm. Well, there's still many, many efforts across the world today to improve women's access to education. So that's a really an ongoing project and Brokea had that vision which we hope will one day come to fruition across the world. It does cover an awful lot and so subtly and with such a gentle touch mm. I would say. And so as we've said this is a utopia and we were thinking a bit about if we could create our own feminist utopia what would it be like? And we'd like to invite listeners as well to perhaps come up with some ideas of what would be in your feminist utopia. It's an interesting idea because I quite like a lot of the ideas in Ladyland. Yes. Yeah. Particularly about having no weapons and yeah. just using environmental resources. And, and having nature mm. as part of everyday life, not being separated from the environment, but being part of it and working with it. Yeah. But yeah, there's loads of things that could make life a lot better and education is probably one of them, having access to knowledge so that people can make their own decisions, mm. not being oppressed by power structures which rely on violence mm. and threat yeah. in order to maintain them, which is what how it was working. And even our power structure in this country still mm. works on that yeah. basis mm-hmm. quite a lot, doesn't it? Mm. So what would your utopian dreams be? What would it be like if, if we could have the perfect system where everyone would live harmoniously? You have been listening to She Wrote Too with Nicola Morgan and Caroline Rance. To make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode, subscribe at shewrote2.substack.com That's she wrote to .substack.com, where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to welcome you again next time.